We're a pioneer church based in Loughborough in the UK. Our mission is to make disciples to establish heaven on earth. We need friends. We've got music and movies on demand. We've got the world in the palm of our hands. We've got fun trips, internships, play scripts and hair snips, film clips, fish and chips at the touch of our thumb tips. Need to lead or breed or feed your cat? Well, it turns out there's an app for that. But we need friends. We've got computers for a fiver, cars without a driver. We've got louder, further, faster, more, a bigger network than ever before. But we need friends. And friends are amazing. See, friendship is atomic. From the boardroom to the nursing home, from the coffee shop to the playground. It's relational connections that make the world go round. See, we were created to know and be known. It's better to eat kebabs with friends than salad on your own. And, and yet we trace in populous places. We're strangers in rooms of familiar faces. We crave deeper meaningfuls but experience anonymity. We dance superficially around the promise of proximity and we need friends. And quantity is no substitute for quality. We need 5G, HD, 24 carat friends. Lifelong, fight strong, tag along, forgive all wrong friends. Friends to talk through our problems personal. Friends to call when the cancer's terminal. When it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, your year, you just remember what your old pal said. We get by with a little help from our friends. And look to the one who made friendship possible, whose nail-pierced hands bridged a chasm uncrossable. His scandalous invitation follows the most glorious of amends. There is no greater love than they that lay their life down for their friends. So celebrate with me the ship most worth sailing. And follow the example of the friend unfailing. May we raise our game and drop our cover. Invest our energies in one another. May we still be there when the rain starts to fall. And accept the most important friend request of all. Because we need friends. Thank you for coming to this <laughs> seminar. It's, uh, I wonder whether uh, you just might begin by turning to the person next to you and answering one of, the fa- one of my favorite questions I like to ask when I meet somebody. What does your perfect day look like? Turn to the person next to you. What does your perfect day look like? It may be today. Turn to the person next to you. Two minutes. What does your perfect day look like? Uh, I have just one question off the back of this, and be honest, was anybody's day spent on their own? Well, you're still welcome in this seminar, but maybe you need this seminar as well. Uh, I don't know about anybody else, my, my, my perfect day, depending on how I'm feeling really, what, is what I get up to during the day, but my day always ends, the perfect day, around a fire in the evening, with my, with my nose full of the, the smell of the smoke of the fire, the taste in my mouth of, of something sweet, but my ears full of the laughter of my friends around me. And um, I, I've, got a, uh, I've got a 10-year-old and a 4-year-old, as I said this morning. Um, uh, last week, my wife went away and abandoned me. I was a solo parent for five days. It was, it was traumatic as much for them as it was for me, I think. And, uh, and one day I said to my four-year-old as we came out of nursery, I said, Joss, what was the best bit of your day? And he said, Ali said that he would be my friend. I said, wow. I said, what happened? He said, he said and then we had a really big hug. I thought, isn't that cute? 
But, um, but there is something, isn't there, about the, the billionaire on their deathbed doesn't wish I made another few more quid. They think about the relationships. And this seminar is about making deeper friendships, being, there being less lonely people in the world and more followers of Jesus. And over the last couple of years, I've just been captivated by this friendship thing. Um, I started out, I must, I took cards on the table to start with, I, I started out thinking about friendship as an evangelist. Uh, because I, um, I, I was, I'm a missiologist as well. I study how people come to faith. Biggest factor in someone coming to faith is a friend. So I was like, how can we make more friendship? And, and, and the research, recent research is really challenging in this area. So I said this morning, 46% of people who are Christians don't know someone well enough to invite them to church. There's, uh, in our world, friendship is under, is under pressure and under attack. And, and, even, and that's true for Christians too. So there's an amazing piece of research, research that's just been done called Talking Jesus that asked um, a load of uh, not-yet-Christians what their perceptions are of Christians, but also Christians uh, asked Christians about their experience of evangelism. And one of the things it asked uh, uh, of, of non-Christians is, do you know someone who's a practicing Christian? And in 2015, when this piece of research was done, 67% of non-Christians said they knew someone who was an active practicing Christian. Just seven years later, that stat had dropped from 67% to 53%. So in seven years... 14% less people know someone who's a practicing Christian. I find that really challenging. So I've got to, but I've got to confess that I thought, well, what if we could help friendship in the UK? I think in the end, more people would become Christians if people were just better friends. So I start off with that, but I've got to, I've got to tell you, um, first of all, I want to be really clear. You don't become friends with people to convert them. We become friends with people because we're made in the, in the image of the relational God. And God commands us to love our neighbor. And we're created for it. So I thought I want to be really clear on that, first of all. But I've got to say also, as I've investigated friendship, it's just captivated me, the idea that God created us for a relationship. Um, and so what I'd love to do today is, first of all, look a bit of, about the theology of friendship. Then we're going to have a little book, bit of look at the science of friendship, um, how powerful and how beautiful it is and how God-ordained it is. But then we're going to ask the question, if it's so good... Why is it such a challenge? So we're going to ask the question, what are the pressures on friendship at the moment? Um, and then we're going to think about the art of friendship and look at the example of Jesus and the way he did friendship um, and then close with a bit of practical advice. So hopefully, bear with me for the next 46 minutes. Um, hopefully it's going to be fun. Um, there'll be other moments where I kind of encourage you to talk to each other. But let's begin, shall we? In fact, let's pray. And Because if I speak, we might learn something. But if God speaks, we might really be inspired and encouraged, might we? So let's pray and just invite you in your own heart to say, Lord, would my friendships be different as a result of today? Would I be a better friend? And Holy Spirit, would you speak to me about this most beautiful of subjects? In Jesus' name, amen. If we could have the next slide, please, that'd be grand. So let's have a look at the power of friendship, the theology of friendship. Well, let's have a look at friendship in the Bible. And friendship in the Bible begins actually on the first page of the Bible, um, when, when we, we find that God as Trinity creates the world. And uh, we find that the, kind of the, the early church fathers, when they were looking for a word to describe the divine mystery of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they used this beautiful Greek word called perichoresis. Let me hear you see perichoresis. And perichoresis is this kind of, is this kind of um, literally means interpenetration. And, and as, as people have kind of looked at this word perichoresis, has this image of a kind of divine dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God and yet dynamically interacting with one another. 
And so there's this kind of beautiful truth at the heart of theology that God's almost kind of in relationship with himself. And out of this relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are created. And then we read in Genesis that God creates the days of the week. My kind of son comes back from Sunday school and talks about the days of the week in which different things were made. And eight times in the, in the creation account, God says things were good or very good. The first thing that is not good, anyone, anyone know? Not good for a man to be alone. Very good, Holly. Well done. Ten points and five stars. It is not good for us to be alone. So there's a really interesting little thing that we do as Christians where we sing songs. I'm really sorry if the worship band are going to sing a song like this. Um, but we sing songs like, All I Need Is You, Jesus. The Beatles sang All You Need Is Love. I saw an advert before Christmas that ambitiously claimed All You Need Is Cake. Um, and, and, and when we sing songs like, all I need is you, Jesus, that's, I get the sentiment, right? We get the sentiment that we want to be completely dependent on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But it's not what the Bible says about what we're to be. Because all we need is not Jesus, because it is not good for man and women to be alone. We were created for relationship. We were created for friendship. And so God creates a helper for Adam and, and throws him into relationship with another we then read throughout scripture this kind of the constantly people are given others, David and, and Jonathan, Elijah, Elisha, Paul, Timothy, Jesus, the disciples. And then when we get to Jesus in scripture, we see this incredible moment uh, in, in John where, where Jesus says to his disciples, I call you friends. And what's extraordinary about that is, is there's no other record of a first century rabbi saying to his disciples, and calling his disciples friends. It was completely, it would have been a wild thing. As, as, the, as people who had an understanding of the kind of the, the rabbinic system would have read in John, Jesus saying to his disciples, I call you friends. It would have been crazy. And then goes on to say, at the heart, this beautiful truth at the heart of the gospel, there is no greater love than they that lay their life down for their friends. And so we even see in this wider gospel narrative, Jesus saying, my, my his demonstration of his love is to lay down his life for his friends. And, and how we view God really matters, right? So A.W. Tozer uh, says that what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I guess it's not surprising that when we come to think about how we relate to the creator of the universe, we have lots of kind of images and relationships in our heads. So we, we think about God as our father, as our sustainer, as our teacher, as our judge, as our provider, our example. But don't miss this in your relationship with Jesus. God is also your friend. And that's wild. It's beautiful. And we don't want, you know, we don't want God to become the Lord Almighty because he's still the Lord Almighty. And so we hold that intention. We hold the personal nature with the, with the powerful nature of God. But we need to hold that tension well and remember that God is our friend. So that's a bit of the theology of friendship. Thinking now about the science of friendship. So as I've kind of researched the, the project in the book, I've had some real fun exploring what friendship does to our brains. And when we're with friends, picture me in my garden around the fire pit. Um, uh, there's various moments during that when, you, when you're kind of in those intimate circles with friends, your brain does some cool things. So the first thing the brain does, it releases a chemical called oxytocin. Now oxytocin is a really powerful chemical. It's the same... Um, chemical that, 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 uh, that, that bonds a, a mother and a baby. It's uh, most people's favorite chemical. It's apparently known as the cuddle chemical, which I quite like. 
And, and this presence of oxytocin that's released when we're with friends is really long-lasting. And so the, the image on the screen at the beginning of, of, uh, of the seminar with the, between the old friends, when, we get, when you've got friends who've been there for, together for a really long time, you have this, there's, there's a long presence of oxytocin connecting older, older friends. There's a reason why my friend, my, my son's friend, Ali, the oxytocin between them two is pretty, pretty limited right now. But if they become friends until they're 70, it's a really strong bond that's formed between them. Second chemical uh, to talk about is cortisol. Let me hear you say cortisol. I mean, it's, a, it's, the, it's the graveyard shift before dinner, so I thought I'd get a bit of, bit of interaction. Um, cortisol is, is a really powerful chemical uh, in, in our bloodstreams um, that helps regulate our blood pressure and sugar levels. It kind of prepares us for action. When we wake up in the morning, our, our bodies produce cortisol to get, to get us going. And studies show that if you don't have a close friend, your cortisol levels increase significantly. Those with the best friends, they've looked at people's um, bloodstreams and uh, the kind of rates of cortisol. And, and if you have a really close friend, um, your, your cortisol levels fall significantly. So what does this mean? Well, well cortisol is really good in, in small quantities. We need it because the kind of fight or flight response. But constant levels of high cortisol means you have more chance of heart attacks, more chance of illness, more chance of diabetes. And studies have shown that friendship is so good for us that you can, you can live really physically unhealthily. You can eat terribly, you can smoke, you can drink, you can do virtually no exercise, and yet if you've got good friends, you will live longer than someone who keeps themselves physically in shape but is socially isolated. Some people are going, yes. So it really is better. The line, the line, in, the line in the poem, it is better to eat kebabs with friends than salad on your own, really is true. Now, I think, for the, for the record, before you run off and say the Evangelical Alliance says you can eat what I like and drink, drink, drink and smoke and stuff, um, for the record, I think it's better to do both. Um, I was on the early morning run this morning in, in, the, in the veterans camp behind, uh, behind the, the, young, uh, the young whippersnappers. Um, but, um, but, but it really is better. Friendship is so good for us. And came across, I came across this wonderful example of this. Uh, in 1950s Pennsylvania, uh, some... Um, some scientific researchers came across this town called Rosetto. And it's a really beautiful story because they, they came across this town, and, and in this town, Rosetto, no one was having heart attacks, and no one could work out why. The rate of heart attacks was so much lower than, than the national average. And so they, they really delved down into kind of to, to try and understand why people weren't dying. And so they looked at the water supply, they looked at the healthcare, they looked at their diets, and uh, these people were really not eating well. So they were kind of eating lard-soaked meatballs and drinking red wine with abandon and smoking cigars. They, they, it wasn't the diet. The truth was that these people were staying alive longer because of their relationships. Three to four generations lived under one roof. They had this beautiful society of, of trust. People left their doors open and, and, and there, was, there was a religious life at the heart of the community. People really knew each other. They really were the best of friends. What's tragic is, over the next couple of decades, this beautiful town began to reflect the, the lifestyle patterns of the rest of America, and heart rates and heart, rates, of, rates of heart attacks returned to normal. And, um, but it's a really fascinating study of the, of the power of friendship and how good it is for us. We really were created for it. It turns out the secret of eternal life is not what you know, it's who you know. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? So, would love you uh, quickly to just, uh, for two minutes, turn to the people around you and describe for yourselves 
What is friendship like at its best? When have there been moments where you've just, you've, you've experienced the power of great friends and great friendships? Turn to the people around you, two minutes, go. Friendship is, is also under pressure. So I talked about this uh, this morning about somewhere between one in five and one in three uh, women have no close friends. Uh, sorry, men have no close friends. The situation's not much better for, for, for women. Um, 40% of young adults say they, have, they, say they always often feel lonely. Uh, we have millions of people in our communities who have no one to call when they receive great news, no one to sit down with and talk about really important stuff, and no one to cry out to when a devastating storm arrives on the shore of their life. And uh, during COVID, uh, ha- COVID undoubtedly had an impact on friendship. So during COVID-19, people who say they always or often feel lonely uh, went from one in 20 to one in 14. Um, for some people, social distancing really did mean social isolation. And I don't know about anybody else, my reflection as I looked at on, on COVID was that my incidental friendships, those people who I kind of sat next to at work and, and bumped into in the street, really diminished, but actually my intentional friendships really increased. So friendship changed. And research has also shown that over time, we have more connections than ever before. Our connections with those around us, our friendship on Facebook, if you like, the connections we have, we're better at staying in touch with people and have a wider network. But actually, the research tells us that the quality of those friendships has really suffered. And there's loads of reasons that we could look at, and there's, this whole, there's a whole chapter in a book somewhere about it. But, um, but, but I just want to highlight a couple today. First of all, and time is like oxygen to friendship. And, 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 and the, the, so the question is, do we, have, do we have less time? Well, kind of yes and no. So when we look at working patterns, you know, we're not, we're not working as many hours as previous generations. But more people in households are working, and the nature of work has changed. So um, a really good example of this is that my best mate is a builder, and so uh, he digs all day. He tells me he thinks as well while he digs, but he digs all day for a living. And so when he gets home at kind of five o'clock, he is ready for friendship, because he's not been thinking as much as me and his wife and a load of us whose job it is, we're kind of knowledge workers. So 42% of people in the UK and 1 billion people worldwide are what is called knowledge workers, which means we, we think for a living and you can think about all the various professions where, where people primarily use their brains rather than their bodies to work. And this is a dramatic change in our world. And I think for me, there's been this real penny drop moment of why so many of us, when we get back from work, just want to crash on the sofa and watch Netflix. Because we, we're using those same muscles during the day, the, 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 the relational muscles that we use to make friends. And, and, and so that's kind of one factor. Another factor is screens. So the average UK adult spends three and a half hours watching television a day, um, amounting to 78,000 hours, 3,600 movies, and 31,500 episodes uh, during their lifetime. Apparently, Netflix says that their major, rif- their major rival um, in, the, in the streaming services is not Disney+, Plus; it's sleep. And I, I think that, that those two combinations of, of screens and time really do play a, a role in, in the pressure that we feel on friendship and the enemies to friendship, as well as a whole of other, a load of other, other factors. Uh, next slide, please. So, but I do want to think about how we begin to um, think about friendship. 
And the, the, the classic kind of Sunday school answer for me when I was younger was the answer is always Jesus. And, and one thing I found, one thing I've just been fascinated to do, and in fact, I, I discovered, I didn't, I didn't discover Jesus through science, but I discovered through friendship, Jesus through science. Let me tell you how. Uh, there is a, a guy called Robin Dunbar, who is a kind of, a bit of a kind of friendship guru um, in the UK. And he's most famous for Dunbar's number, which is 150. And that where, this, where this number came about from is that Robin Dunbar basically um, had a... Um, uh, he, he studied uh, monkeys, and he looked at kind of the size of, of, of monkeys' social circles compared to the size of their, the social bit of their brain. And he discovered this, this correlation between the size, of, uh, the size of social groupings of primates compared to the size of the prefrontal cortex in their brain uh, that related to, uh, that, that related to um, their social ability. And what he found was, then he kind of mapped that forward and said, well, based on the size of a human's bit of their brain, what is the maximum number of relationships that's possible? And he said around about 150 is the maximum amount of relationships that we can hold. And, and when we think about 150, he's basically saying, this is not your Facebook friends. These are, these are the kind of people, his, his kind of basic definition was, these are the people in our lives who we wouldn't feel embarrassed to join uninvited for a drink if we saw them uh, in a bar. Another analogy says, says these are the people who, if you bumped into someone in the, in the departures lounge at three o'clock in the morning of Hong Kong Airport, you'd, you'd know where you stood in relation to them and they would know where they stood in relation to you. Uh, th these are kind of a, a closer network than someone you were once at school with who you'd become friends on Facebook with. And um, Dunbar suggests that there are then kind of further layers within those 150. So 150 is about your friends, but he then kind of says, what happens if we map inwards and outwards? So we can have the next slide, but you got it, you're all over it, look at that. So he reckons one and a half, 1.5 people, the reason it's one and a half people is that some of us have a best friend and a spouse. Um, some people have uh, just one or one, some, so some people have two, some people have one, so it's about 1.5. And he's, um, so I've, yeah, I'm, not, I'm yet to meet with anyone with half a friend, for example. But this kind of one and a half is the kind of the really intimate. We can be really intimate with, what, with, with one person. The next layer is this kind of three to five people who is kind of close friends. These are the kind of people who you might see kind of once a week. You're kind of really close in a circle. Then you have kind of 12 to 15 best friends. These are the kind of people who you would uh, see kind of once a, one, about kind of once a month. Um, there's kind of still strong feelings of emotional attachment. Um, but, but they're not the kind of, they're not, they're not, uh, they're not the really, really close, close people right in the middle. And then 150, Dunbar's number, uh, who are kind of just friends. They're kind of on your Christmas card list if you send them, and you kind of have contact with them probably kind of once or twice a year. And then he goes further and says, kind of these, these you 500, you have acquaintances, uh, people who, you're friends with on Facebook, they know who you, who you are, you probably wouldn't go to their wedding or their funeral, um, and you, at some point in your life, you may have had closer ties with them, um, but maybe that's changed now. And then he says, if you go further out, the circle that's not on the screen, about 1,500 we're capable of having people whose, whose name we know, um, and, and, and kind of these are about kind of faces who we can kind of put names to. And as I kind of, as I kind of investigate these kind of circles of friends, I looked at them and thought, they look a lot like Jesus, right? So we're gonna have the next slide up, please. So when you look at Jesus's friends, Jesus had a one. So John is referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, 
Again, there's a bit of debate there because John only refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. I think if I was writing a book of the Bible, I would probably call myself the disciple Jesus loved as well. But there is, there, there is something about his relationship with John where, where, where John seemed to have seen more of his life, had greater access to his heart than anybody else. You can really argue that Jesus had a best friend. Then we have the next circle, Peter, James, and John. And they were the disciples that Jesus spent most time with. They were, they were invited to be present at some of the highest moments and lowest moments in Jesus' ministry. Then, of course, there's the 12. Jesus had this kind of this huddle. Um, and, and these are the circle of friends I guess we're most familiar with. They weren't afforded the same amount of time as Peter, James, and John. But, but yet they appear repeatedly in the Gospels in, in Jesus' company care and confidence. Then as you go out, kind of, then as you go out, uh, you have this, uh, this network. So beyond the 12, it's clear there are others within Jesus' kind of uh, mission field. Uh, who, so you have the, the 72 uh, that Luke refers to. Um, there, but then there's others who, who you have kind of Martha and Mary. You have, the, you have Lazarus. You have Joanna and Susanna in Luke 8. So there are undoubtedly more. Now, this is a bit of Phil Knox speculation. But I reckon if you add the 72 to everybody else, I reckon you probably get to about 150. But then you have, in the widest possible circle, you have people who Jesus only encountered once. So you have kind of the guests at parties, you have fellow travelers on the way to Galilee, you've got Legion, the unnamed woman at the well. So there's some people who Jesus only encounters once. And uh, one of my encouragements is to think about, really intentionally, who are in your circles? Where are they? And to think intentionally about being strategic like Jesus was. You see, with Jesus, we, we get really good. We often think about Jesus. I, I, um, I, was, I grew up in the 90s, and in the 90s, it was a really cool thing to do, to wear a little bracelet, which said, what would Jesus do? And um, uh, it was, I mean, it was great. I, mean, I, I, was, I said to the, I was with the young people earlier, and I said I was never that cool, and that bracelet pretty, pretty much shows how cool I was. Um, but, but, um, but often when we think about what would Jesus do in relationships, we think about how we treat people. And that's absolutely right. Jesus is our model for compassion and generosity and care and self-sacrifice. But I want us also to, to consider him as our model for who we spend time with and the intensity of those relationships. Because I think one of the challenges of our world is that we are told we can have it all. And we can be, and, and that we apply that to our relationships. And, and as a result, we can spread ourselves so thinly across a large group of friends. We can miss out on the inner circle and the huddle, and, and, and the, the best of friendship, because all of our friends are in the 150, and we lack the quality of the inner circles. So, um, before we move on, I would love to just let you turn around to the people next to you, and, and for you to talk about, before we come on to the, before we think about the circles themselves, for you, what are the pressures on your friendships? What in your lives are the things that prevent you um, from being the best of friends? What I'd love to do now is basically um, take, us, uh, take us through the circles and suggest what friendship looks like um, within each one. So, first of all, uh, let's have a look at the inner circle. Um, the, the, I love the, the, the Peter, James, and John moments. I kind of went through the Gospels and looked at the various moments where we have Peter, James, and John and looked at what the... The, what friendship looked like in each of these places. Um, and, and first of all, I, I just want to say how awkward it seems. Because basically there are just moments like, uh, like the Mounds of Transfiguration, like Gethsemane, where, where Jesus basically says to the nine, 
Like, you stay there. Peter, James, and John with me. It's really awkward. And it's really exclusive. And it's not, if I'm really honest, as I've looked at it and I've thought about it more and more, it, Jesus isn't fair. And, and it's really, yeah, I, I've, just, I've, really, I've really wrestled with this because I feel, the person I feel most sorry for? Andrew, right? So you've got James and John, they're brothers. They're with Jesus. Then you've got Peter, who gets to come in. But Andrew's Peter's brother. And he's like, well, James and John are together. Why can't I come? And also, it's Andrew who introduces Peter to Jesus. I mean, it's, it's really unfair. <clears throat> um, but there are moments where Jesus is really intentional about taking the three with him. And then you look at kind of what that friendship looked like. Well, first of all, um, time and presence. We can't get away in friendship from time and presence. If you're looking to be great friends with people, time and pre- you can't beat time and presence. And um, there, there's some beautiful science, actually, around how much time it takes to be good friends with people. So uh, someone has actually done the work and done the research around um, what it takes. So um, for casual friends, those who are kind of in the 150, um, uh, the, the widest possible, maybe even further out, um, to get to know people, to be kind of friends, about 30 hours of contact time you need. As you move inside, uh, there's another layer, um, which is your kind of moment where I reckon this is the really awkward bit where it's kind of somewhere between a handshake and a hug. You know that phase where you're out with us with a friend? That takes about 50 hours of contact time. Then there's the, uh, then there's the good friends. I reckon this is a kind of the 12. To become a, to become a 12, uh, they reckon about 140 hours of quality time to become someone at that level. And then best friends, uh, this sociologist reckons, 300 hours of quality time together. Once you've spent that, scientifically, I mean, obviously, it's not like, to, to coin a terrible political phrase, it's not, you can't have an oven-ready friendship. Do you know what I mean? You can't say, I'm going to clock, clock up the hours on a, on a wall chart, and once I've got to 300, we can be best friends. But that's about, about the amount of time. It demonstrates just the, the amount of time you have to spend with someone um, over a long period of time to, to get to there. Um, so the first thing is around um, time and presence, being with people. Um, the next bit is about, is about vulnerability. So as I shared this morning, you, sh- you heard a bit of my heart on opening your heart to people. Um, I think one of my greatest frustrations in friendship is being with people who you open your heart to and there's no reciprocation. What, but, but I have also witnessed the moments where, where either someone's opened their heart to me or I've hope, my, opened my heart with somebody else. And the power of that moment to unite and connect people. And, and the thing with vulnerability is that it, it feels like weakness. It feels like you're giving the other person an opportunity to destroy you. But to the other person, it often looks like raw courage. And I would encourage you, if you're looking for ways to deepen friendship with those around you, maybe you've got people and you're 150 or you're 12 and you want to bring them closer, there is no substitute to time, presence, and vulnerability. The final thing in this inner circle to, to encourage you with is the example of where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. 
So first of all, he, he takes them on the Mount of the Transfiguration. This was a glorious, beautiful moment where there's Elijah and Moses and, and Jesus is, there's the, the, the glory of the Lord shines on Jesus and and, um, and this moment where, you know, imagine you know, Elijah representing the prophets, Moses representing the law, the, the, the voice of the Father, this is my son with whom I'm well, well pleased. He takes Peter, James, and John with him. It's, it's, the, it's really interesting. It's just about the highest point he ever takes them to physically. But also it's the highest point kind of spiritually and emotionally almost of Jesus' ministry. But then what's really interesting is that not only does he take them to the highest point, Gethsemane in the valley was just about the lowest point, but also was not just the lowest point physically in terms of terrain, but also the, phys- the, the lowest point spiritually where Jesus sweats blood because he knows he's going to the cross, and he takes his closest companions with him in those moments. What can we learn from this? Well, I, I think when you get really good news, let your inner circle know first. Don't let your closest friends know via Facebook that something really good's happened. The biggest and greatest celebrations of your life should be spent rejoicing with those who are closest to you. But also there are moments when we get phone calls that devastate our lives, when we are up against it and life is frankly awful. It's your inner circle who you need in those moments. And, and I've found as I've journeyed through, through grief in my years, it's almost being demanding of my inner circle and saying, look, would you come and be with me? I remember my, I was 21 when my dad died and, and um, my uh, best friend, Ads, who I've known through school, and, and um, yeah, he's my best friend. He's my, he's my one. And um, that night when dad died, I, I, I sat in, the, in my parents' house on the kitchen worktop and, and had this moment where I realised that my dad would never meet my children. And I wept uncontrollably and, and Ads sat with me all night. And it's that presence. But actually, do you know what I did? I just, throughout that time, I didn't, I didn't get everything right through grief. But one of the things I did was just, I just told Adam what I wanted. You know, I think sometimes we do that thing, don't we, when people are going through storms and we say, if there's anything I can do, sometimes that is the right thing to say. But sometimes don't just say, if there's anything I can do, do something. And say, what do you want me to do? And that might be a meal. It might be just to sit. It might be to go away, whatever it is but we need people with us in our Gethsemanes and our transfigurations. So that's a bit about how to be with our kind of inner circle. Um, There's obviously loads more to talk about, uh, but there are 12 minutes left. Um, So this next bit is that we need a huddle. We need to think about what our huddle's like. And um, I I love, I read this amazing book around gathering, about the power of gathering, and apparently 12 is a magic number. Who knew? King Arthur's round table, juries, sports teams, political cabinets, 12's a pretty common number. And the thing I've discovered as I've looked at the 12 is there's this fascinating thing that Jesus does with, with, with who he chooses to be around him. And the first thing that's really interesting is seven of the 12, critically a majority, I reckon seven of the 12 knew each other before Jesus called them. So Peter, James, John, Andrew, Thomas, Bartholomew, uh, uh, Thomas, Bartholomew and Philip um, were, were fishermen um, from Bethsaida. They kind of knew each other before, before Jesus was there. They would have had the same interests. And this is beautiful because uh, science tells us that, that we, we, typically are, we typically gravitate to, towards people who are similar to us. So there's these things, that kind of the seven pillars of friendship. Speaking the same language, growing up in the same place, having the same education and occupation, holding the same worldview, sharing the same hobbies, finding the same things funny, 
and listening to the same music. These are the kind of pillars on which most friendships are formed. We, we, we naturally, or birds of a feather, flock together, right? And I want to encourage you that this kind of friendship is really good. Seven out of the 12 disciples, being friends with people who are like you is great. But five of the disciples were absolute curveballs. And I think it's really deliberate on Jesus' part that he calls people who are different as well as people who are the same. And I want to encourage you to think about your, your friendship circles, your 12. Who, in, your, if you, in, your, in your closest friends, is everyone, do they look the same as you? Are they the same age as you? Do they think the same as you? Do they find the same things funny? Because I want to encourage you that there were some people in Jesus' 12 who were really different and would have undoubtedly not just clashed, but possibly wanted to kill each other. Let me explain. Matthew uh, was a tax collector. And in Jesus' time, there were three types of tax collector. Uh, there were the gabi, everybody say gabi. And there were the mockers, everybody say mockers. And the, the gabi were kind of general tax, co- tax collector. They collected the kind of income tax and property tax. And then the mockers, there were two types of mockers. There were the great mockers, who kind of worked behind the scenes. Zacchaeus, he was a great mockers. And then there were the little mockers, and the little mockers, they kind of worked in booths, and they taxed kind of imports and exports they passed down the road. And um, they, they, were, they were the absolute worst type of tax collectors. When the Pharisees talk about the tax collectors, the little mockers, you know, it even sounds horrible, doesn't it? You're a little mockers. You know, they were the absolute worst. They not only char- could charge their own rates, but they would also take a little bit on the side and they, were the, they, were, they had sold out their religious identity for a quick book to the Romans, basically. And it is from one of these booths in Matthew 9 that Jesus calls Matthew. Matthew's a little mockers. There is also a guy in the 12 called Simon. And Simon was a zealot. And under Roman occupation, there were different people who had different approaches to the Romans. So the Pharisees, religious fundamentalists, if we just get holy, God will sort us out. There were the Essenes. The Essenes retreated to the desert. They were like, if we, we're just going to sit in the desert until the Roman occupation blows over, and then we'll reintegrate into society. And then there were the Zealots. And the Zealots wanted to kill Romans and tax collectors. And so you've got this fascinating moment. I'd have loved to have been there. When the kind of 12, it's like the Avengers Assemble moment. Do you know what I mean? Like when the 12 are all together for the first time. And you've got in the room these seven fishermen, and they're like, yeah, come on. And then, there's, then maybe Matthew comes in, and everyone's like, oh, you know, Matthew. But the fishermen are, you know, they don't, they're okay with Matthew. And then Simon the Zealot walks in. And Matthew and Simon would have known who each other were and wanted to kill each other. Or maybe they didn't know who each other were, and they find out, and you're like, what? That's what I, 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 you know, kind of reality TV absolute moment. But my encouragement to you is to think about your, your friendships. And I, see, I think there's something really challenging in our world at the moment around the divisions that we face. And I think that, that choice has given us some brilliant things. The fact we have more choice than most previous generations is great. But one of the things that choice has done is it means that we often only spend time with the people who are the same as us. People of the same wealth, people of the same worldview, people of the same background. And that is leading to divisions in our world. Most pe- a lot of people, I think it's about a third of the people who voted Brexit, don't know anyone who voted Remain and the other way around. We are divided. Could the antidote to that division be friendship? Could the antidote to that be the church? Because one thing I love about the church, and I preach in one almost every weekend, 
is I see beautiful ages, backgrounds, stories, worldviews together. And I really believe that it is the unique thing that the church has to offer the world alongside the gospel. So that's that challenge. Finally then, let's look at our network. And uh, the 150 number is absolutely glorious because the average size of of a Christmas card list in the UK, 154. Average size of a wedding, 144. Uh, the, uh, the average size of a village in 1086, 150. 600, 700 years later, that was only now 160. Isn't that amazing? Something beautiful about this number. I reckon also most churches I preach at on a Sunday, about 150. Something about this, about this number. And, and uh, um, my encouragement here is not all of your relationships have to have the intensity of the three and the twelve. Sometimes you just need friends to have a laugh with. And that's great. I've got a mate called Cheeky Dan. He's cheeky by name, cheeky by nature. He's great. We were texting the other day. There was no depth to the conversation. I did actually ask how he's doing, how his job was going. He's not capable of having a serious conversation. At least I hope he is with some people, but he's not with me. It's been like that for 20 years. But you know what? That's great for me because he's in my 150 and it's great. I pray too that he does. He needs a three, a one and a 12. But we need, if, if, our, if our court needs solemn advisors, and it does, we also need a gesture or two. And I think the other thing I would encourage you within this is I, I really believe that we, we need each other for encouragement. And so my, my great encouragement to you, if you think about those in your 150, is to be people of encouragement to them. My mum used to talk about having radiators and drains in her life and having a good balance of people who, who, she, who she was with who radiated life and people who she was with who drained her. And, and having a good balance of those things is, is really healthy. But be a, for some people, we are that, we are that radiator. I had my New Year's resolution at the beginning of last year was to, to write a letter each week to someone in my 150. And um, I didn't quite, I think it lasted about as long as May, which is more than most New Year's resolutions. Um, I will get, to, I will get down, down the list eventually. But do you know what the responses that I got back from people who said, I've never read a letter before. <laughs> you know, it's great. But, but actually that encouragement that we have the opportunity to bring um, is great. So, um, what I'd love you to do just for a moment, um, and I'd love you to do this just in, just in silence, is just have a moment where we ask the Lord in, just where you are, have a think about your circles. And I want to encourage you to have a look. You can, you, you can leave the image on the screen. Have a think about your, have a think about your circles. Who, who are the people God is calling you today to really invest in? Who are the people in your inner circle? And just ask the Lord to just bring to mind those people. Your homework today is to take these circles away and to actually fill in the names and to then think about the directions of travel as well. Who are the people who may be in your outer circles who you need to bring in a bit closer? But also, what's your posture towards these friends? Where do you need to give time and presence and vulnerability? Who are the people who are maybe a little bit different to you who you need to invest some some time in? And who are the people who God's calling you to encourage 